0: welcome to church 213 we're so glad you're listening to our sermon series titled summer in the psalms where pastor ryan will walk us through the psalms and how we can use them as godly reflections to look backward look around and look forward to strengthen our walk with god thanks for listening What I want you to get when you leave is it's important, if you're going to open up and you're going to see God work to go with the gladness of God. So let's turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, let's stand together. Psalm 126 is, is one of those other songs of a sense. So there's 15 of them. <clears throat> We've covered a few already. Psalm 127, Psalm 128. These are those 15 songs of ascent that the Israelites would sing when they were going to Jerusalem. They were, they were proclamations of truth. They were psalms they were that were used to look back, to look around, and to look forward. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. Church, turn that frown upside down. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely Come back with shouts of joy. Carrying his sheaves. You guys can be seated. Psalm 126 is meaty. Going with the gladness of God. This message is for somebody this morning. That's just struggling. Having a glad heart. Struggling with, with going with with a smile on your face because of the oppression maybe of a situation that's going on right now. It seemed the situation was like that all the time. And for for a thousand years, the Israelites used these psalms, all 150 of them, to look back and to look around and to look forward as they walked, catch this, as they walked hand in hand with a God who was in relentless pursuit of their worship. That's Alexander's testimony. God has been in relentless pursuit of him. Come full circle. Have you ever thought about God like that? Being in relentless pursuit of you. Who am I, Lord, that you would think about me? Made a little lower in the angels? I think it's Psalm 8. But yet you're in relentless pursuit. What is the relentless pursuit? It's that you would just love him enough to love him enough to obey him. Just elite love love him enough to, to give your allegiance. That's the message of the gospel. I was telling Sidonia, she, she, she was talking about how she experienced other faiths. See, <clears throat> Jesus clearly says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Really, all the other world religions are trying to answer one question. The problem of man, the hopelessness of man. Jesus Christ, the physical image of the invisible God, came to us to reconcile us all the other world religions, all the other isms out there is earthly, creative earthly means so that we might earn our way to heaven. You can't do it. So God came to us in relentless pursuit of us and that God pursues us with his love. That's what gives us a new identity in Christ immediately upon salvation. It's instant. Raised to walk in newness of life. You're spiritually made right, again, because of the power of the gospel. But then, <clears throat> he begins to work in your life. I told Alexander, I said, you're a baby. Ah, he's a big one. <laughs> but a babe in Christ. So he's got to begin to grow. He's got to begin to, to dig in, to, to, to learn the word, to, to memorize the word, to marinate in the word. And as you begin to do that, and you position yourself Under the power of God's word, God begins to mold you. God begins to shape you to remake us a little more day by day through the working of the spirit as we walk in the new title as a child of the king. I praise God he's still working on me. Right? I'm not where I used to be. Praise the Lord. All 150 psalms are priceless treasures of real life lived out by real people in real time. So what we see in Psalm 126, this is a community lament. This is something that they would sing as a group. Just like we sang just now, worthy is the Lord. They would sing this collectively. Some psalms are just you know, personal. But this one, they would lay out for, for the whole congregation. It's a community lament. And what it does... Is it look? It helps us look back on God's faithfulness so that we can move forward with our feet in a new direction to go with the gladness of God. See, church, it's impossible to go without the gladness of God because the because the gospel is a matter of the heart. So you can't you can fake being happy, you can put on a fake smile, you know, but you know when someone's faking a smile, but you can't fake gladness because gladness comes from a, a place of appreciation. Deep gratitude. 2 Samuel 16:7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord looks on the heart. Psalm 126 tells us how to have gladness, no matter the situation. This is the place, y'all. This is the place right here that you can get your hallelujah back. If you want to get your shout back, this is it. Psalm 126. And here's what we see. Here's some handles you can hold on to. How do you get your hallelujah back? Well, you remember God's past faithfulness. That's it. That's your first handle, verses 1, 2, and 3. Point to that. You remember God's Past faithfulness. Look at verse one. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. So the last three words in the first stanza of verse three says, We were joyful. I wanna know what's up. I wanna know why he's so joyful. You know when somebody's just got a pep in their step, and they got that grin on their face, like a hog in a mud hole. You know, I wanna know what you're so happy about, right? Are you that's a question we ask a lot in our house. Are you happy? Why are you so happy? That's what the psalmist is saying, and, and he doesn't leave us hanging. He lays it right out there. He says, it's not a secret. He makes it clear. Hey, what he's doing is he's drawing the mind of the worshipers to remember the moment that they were instantly set free from exile after 70 long years of Babylonian captivity. Exile <clears throat> means um, means forced separation. Sometimes I have to exile my children out of the house. Forced separation. I love you, but I need you to leave my presence right now something bad's going to happen. <laughs> It's a forced separation. See, the Babylonian exile of Judah began in 590, 598. It wasn't just like a roll in, take them captive, and take them all away. It happened in phases. It happened, it happened in rebellion. As they continued to rebel, more of them got drawn away. So it started to happen in 596. When Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonians, rose into Judah, and, and Jehoiakim was a Judah king, he, he tried to form a rebellion and so Nebuchadnezzar took, crushed him and, and, and took some of the royals back. It was, it was the first phase. Well then Zedekiah took over. And Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He tried to stand up and Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of, of the Israelites. The northern kingdom Israel was already gone. 722. Wiped off the map. Never returned. So you have, you have the southern kingdom there. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and, and he destroys, he burns the temple, destroys the wall, takes them back. That happened in 586. The total number was about 5,000, but that was just men. So if you figure the men and the women and the children, you know, you're, you're talking about maybe three times that amount. What you need to know is this decimated the people's morale. I mean, think about it. Not only, not only had they been taken away, but their land was lost, their culture was crushed, and the promises of God seemed to be a vapor in the distant past. That's the way it seemed. But God. Amen? But God. Look at 2 Chronicles 36. I'll throw a black background up there. to you. Second Chronicles 36 starting in verse 23 says this that's why they make the big bucks right there in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing this is what King Cyrus of Persia said. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. Wow. I'm talking about one stroke of the pen. Everything changed. Everything changed. Babylon fell. The Persians took power. God moved on the heart of the king. And God is still moving on the hearts of kings today. I really believe in it. He still got the whole world in his hands, church. He issues this decree. The Jews go back home, and, and they rebuild the temple. Israel's history has resumed by the grace of God. This was unbelievable. They, I mean, they, they knew what they were looking back on. And things changed overnight. They were back. that They couldn't believe it. The Bible says that that they said, the um, the psalmist says it was, we were like those who dream, which means they couldn't believe it. Like this this is beyond anything I could ever dream would happen. The temple would stand again. David's lineage would remain. The people could respond again to the Davidic covenant. They could worship in spirit and in truth. And the Messiah could still have a way to come. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. See, they thought that God was silent. They thought, it was, they thought it was done. The land was desolate while the exiles faced the consequence of sin. They thought they were done. They had seen and heard how that God's house had been burned and the walls were crushed. But God, God was making their path straight for their good and for his glory. They just couldn't see it. What the psalmist is doing, he's looking back. God has not, has not turned his back on them. He's just working backstage. Now I'm here to tell you this morning that God has not turned his back on you. He's just working backstage. He's working back there. See, he told Moses and Joshua to take the land because it was theirs. He planted a burden for the temple and the heart of the prophets. He promised a savior for the world through the line of David. But God, he's still working all things together. But I get it. Listen, it is is easy to look around and think that God has somehow taken his hand off of our culture, right? I mean, you look around and you're like, man, wickedness is is progressing. Wicked leaders, you know, Every leader other than Christ is a wicked leader. So really you have to choose between evil or wickedness, unfortunately. Because the heart of man is deceitful. Nobody can understand it, Jeremiah 17. But it's easy. We, we look around and, and we say, Lord, evil it looks like it's running in But I want you to know, God is not wringing his hands, church. Wringing his hands like he's lost some election. God is not elected. He... He is the undisputed, undefeated King of kings which everybody who has ever sucked air will either bow and worship through Christ or sit in judgment by Jesus. That's that's who we're here to worship. So what I want to tell you is turn off the cable news and open up the good news. It'll change your life. It'll, It'll help you go with a glad heart. Because what, you, what goes down in the well comes up in the bucket. If you expose yourself. And so, for the psalmist, what he was doing is he was remembering something that had already taken place. Something that only God have done, had done. It said, The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. He brought them back. And it cracked him up. He just couldn't stop giggling. When he was thinking about how good God is, every time that thought crossed his mind, he just kept laughing that is a bad feeling to laugh when you know it's irreverent not to y'all know what I'm talking about I see, sometimes I see you guys and you're trying not to laugh and and I know that you're trying not to laugh because that big vein on your forehead starts to (laughs) pop out you know you're at a funeral it's sober and and reverent, but you know you just, you can't help it that is a, that is a that's a very vulnerable place to be, isn't it just crack, crack some up what a challenge for us, that, that the gladness of God should be his faithfulness on our lips. We should be able to look back on things that God has done in our life, and it just kind of makes us giggle, like, Lord, only you. God, only you could do that. Only you could do that. For years, when Parker turned 10, I remember saying, we, we kept him alive for 10 years. <laughs> just turned 21, we turned 20. We kept him alive too, he an adult. That cracks me up. Wow. You look back and say, I shouldn't be living here, or I shouldn't be working here, or I shouldn't be going to church here. But God is so faithful, and it just kind of makes you giggle. A glad heart. Y'all write this down. Recognizing the past work of God results in laughter and joy. Recognizing a past work of God results in laughter and joy. When I look at Kathy Gilbert, it makes me laugh. God is so faithful. You know, thinking of thinking back on what God has done gives you a gladness of your heart. That's how you get your hallelujah back into your marriage. You think back onto those moments that you first dated, that you were just, you know, you were just giddy and giggly and laughing. Just the smallest thing got you all Shook up. Think back on those. Fill the love tank. Think about, Think back on the, the gladness and the goodness of God in those first months, those first years of your marriage. It makes you look at your spouse and go, God, you're so faithful. This is worth fighting for. That's how you go to, go to school. That's how you go to work. The gladness of your heart. That's how you face another day because you can look back and you can see God's faithfulness. That's exactly what's going on in Psalm 126. If you want to walk around with a permanent grin, you start listening to the things that only God could have done in your life and you start remembering those things. That'll put a grin on your face. My encouragement is this. You start with the cross and you work out from there. You start with the moment that, that, that God called you and rescued and then you begin to think about how he began to shape you and mold you. How God's faithfulness just blanket it over you like a cloak and that'll just put a pep in your step. There's something else too. Here's something else I want you hang on to. Notice others giving God credit. How do you get your hallelujah back? Well, you remember God's faithfulness. And then you notice other people giving God credit. I'm going to read 1, one 2, and 3 again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we were what? Joyful. We were joyful. And congested. Here's what it's showing. The psalmist wrote that the way that God had moved in their life was so unbelievable. The way other people saw God work in their own life made him glad. Their deliverance was such a remarkable occurrence that even the Gentiles recognized that it could only be accomplished by God. You think about the Gentiles, the Gentile here means it means other nationalities, people groups. They didn't have a relationship with God like the Israelites did. They were outside the covenant. But just because they were unbelievers didn't mean they weren't watching. You hear what I'm saying? They were looking. They were were wondering. They were waiting. They were anticipating what the God of Israel was going to do next. Remember when they crossed the Jordan and they roll into Jericho? Rahab said, "Hmm, I heard... I heard y'all on the way. The hearts of men just melted. They were, they were unbelievers, but, but they recognized the power of God in their life. The Lord had done great things for them, they said, and it was true. See, there was nothing special about the Israelites other than God chose them to be the billboard. He could have, he could have chosen the Philistines, the Moabites, the Hittites, the Mesquitebites. He could he could, have, he could have chose any of them. But God's sovereignty chooses those that he will use for his glory. That's why he chooses us. It's nothing, nothing that we do on ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's only the work of God that he works in our life and he uses us to be a billboard. Sometimes the Israelites, as a billboard, as a as a, as a testimony, Sometimes this testimony would have been from purifying judgment. The nations would understand the the seriousness of honoring God by the way that he would punish his people. But that's not the way it should be, church. What was was the the best model? Ideally, it would have been through Israel's faithfulness and verbal witness. It would have been them walking with him hand in hand. I, I like to think about it like a canvas that he would make his name known to the Gentiles. He was just, he was just painting his nature of his essence using this canvas called the Israelites. Think about your favorite outfit. I mean when you're going somewhere and you want to look your best, I mean when you want to reflect, when you want to reflect who you are, you if you want to make the best impression, you just don't put on any old shirt. Are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? You don't just pick out an old wrinkly blouse and, and dress? No. What you, what you do is, is you, you thumb through. You thumb through garment after garment after garment you think to yourself, I don't have anything to wear. <laughs> you thumb through. You go to peace. To, you, you, you pick something out and, and you, you, put on, you put on those go-to pieces to reflect the best of who you are to other people. See, there's only one true God maker of heaven and earth. What he did was he he thumbed through and reflected himself in the Old Testament through the Jews. But now, through Christ, the new covenant, all nations, all people are available to be that canvas. So God is still in the business of thumbing through humanity, looking for someone that he can paint his glory on. Sidonia and Alexander, nothing but a blank canvas. God's getting ready just to paint on. See, the Old Testament's the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The whole thing is a hymn book. Did you know that? It all points to him. The whole thing. And he's still in the painting business. And so if you're a Christian, you're a canvas which God paints on to show those, catch this now, outside the family of God, what being a part of, the family of God actually looks like. Nothing has changed. Look at Psalm 96. Psalm 96, 7 through 10. says this. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before Him. Verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the people fairly. The word that jumps out right there is the word ascribe. And this is important to understand what words mean. The Hebrew word ascribe, it means To take up. It means to bring out. It means to give out. The way God worked through their exile was a flashing neon light. It was was giving out his nature. It was pouring out God's great deeds for his people provided the testimony. And that's what our testimony is. If God is writing his story on your life and you are showing that, you you are ascribing to those unbelievers around you, the nature of God. Our testimony is how we bring out the power of God to the skeptic because we're bringing out undeniable proof of his existence. There are people that are watching you. There are unbelievers watching how you handle your business at school, how you water the garden of your marriage, how you how you respond on social media, how you swipe and light. We are under the microscope. People are on the outside looking at the way God's painting and, 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 and arranging our lives and the paintbrushes that he's choosing. And We all reflect a different picture, but we are all made in the same image. And so when you go out, you wake up, and you live life as a believer redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, think about it like a canvas. The testimony. Here's what I believe. I believe a heart gripped in the gospel will be seen by other people. That's just just the way it works. And there's something beautiful that happens inside of your soul when other people begin to see the way God works in your life and begin to give God glory. That's where they were. It it felt really good. It felt really good for, for for the people that they had been telling about the power of God, to actually give God some credit because of what he was doing in their life. When you put naysayers to bed because of what God has done in your life, kind of feels good, don't it? Evidence matters. The fruit that you bear matters to those who are contemplating the cross, is what I'm trying to say. For those that are contemplating the cross, evidence matters of your life. But I've seen I've seen posts and I've heard people say, Well, I don't I don't have to act like I love God to love God. What? God knows my heart. Yes, He does. That ought to scare you to death. God knows my heart. Yeah! That's like saying I don't have to act like I'm alive to be alive. Or telling somebody in English you don't speak English. Or yelling at your kids to stop yelling. Here's what I'm trying to say. They violate the law of non-contradiction. Because you can't have something, something can't be both true and false at the same time in the same way. And so if God is writing the canvas of your heart and he has gripped it with gladness, you will absolutely live that out. That's the evidence that matters. Y'all write this down. A lifestyle struggling to reflect God is a heart held loosely by the gospel. A lifestyle struggling to reflect God is a heart held loosely by the gospel. God doesn't want for your heart to be held loosely by the gospel. He wants to snag it and hold it Squeeze the gospel love into it so that everything you say, do, think, go is just one big canvas. I told you, it's all about him from cover to cover. Matthew 5, Jesus said the same thing. Let's look at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Matthew 5 says this. Are you the salt of the earth? But if the salt should lose its taste... How could it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. For it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. What are the others? People that don't have a light. So that they may see your good words and give glory to the Father in heaven. It's Psalm 126 being played out right here in Matthew 5. What Jesus is saying is we are to be salt and light. And you know, you know what salt does? Salt makes people thirsty. Light wakes people up. So we are to shine bright because when, when we shine bright, he shines bright. And when, when we're thirsty, it makes other people thirsty. And when we're awake in the Spirit, it helps other people to be awake in the Spirit. This is how you go with the gladness of God. You want to get your shout back, church? You want to get your hallelujah back? This is it. You think about the faithfulness of God, and then you notice how other people are giving God the glory through your own life. That'll put some swag in your bag right there. I heard of a man that always wore a smile. And it wasn't one of these four smiles. it was a legit smile. And everywhere, everywhere he went, he just had this smile on his face. And not just that, but he had this line he would always say. And it was, bless the Lord. Everything, bless the Lord. Smiling all the time. Why are you so happy? Bless the Lord. Well, people kind of got tired of it. Well, one day he cut his thumb and it was barely hanging. Almost cut it off. Barely hanging. Just a little bit of skin. And so the naysayers around him said, I bet that man... Not going to say bless the Lord anymore. I bet he's not going to have a smile on his face. Well, next next time he came to church, he said, "Bless the Lord." I cut my thumb, but I didn't cut it off. (laughs) Bless the Lord, church. We got to be cheerful. We got to be bright. We got to be sincere and going with the gladness of God. I mean, if you walk around with a frown on your face all the time, it doesn't reflect the gladness of the gospel in your own heart. Man, I love to see you. I'd love to see you guys roll in here on Sunday morning. I'd like to see you smile. psalmist says, God's been good to us. We need to smile and we need to laugh in the goodness of God for the nations are watching. The whole world is still looking at the United States of America. Indivisible under God. That's the key. We are indivisible as a people rooted and established on truth when we position ourselves under God. And the nations are still watching. We might not change the White House. We can change this house. We can change this house and your house by living in the gladness of God. That's what the psalmist said, that when they noticed the Gentiles giving God credit... For what they had done, they were glad. But it wasn't this prideful glad. It was a, an appreciation glad. They weren't walking around like they had done something. They realized it was a work of, of God alone. And when you see people giving credit where credit is due, it feels good, doesn't it? You see, you see someone giving God the glory. It feels good. I see Lupe with a big grin on her face. <clears throat> she had an opportunity in a very dark season. Give God some glory. She did. That's how you get your hallelujah back. You let other people see what God's doing in your life and you appreciate it. Here's something else though, last thing. You look forward to better days. You look forward to better days. Look at verse four. Restore our fortunes, Lord. So he's kind of snapped back into reality. He's looking back. He's reflecting back on how they were out of exile, on how the nations were just giving God praise. But he doesn't overlook the fact that that's not where he is right now. He's in a dry, very difficult season. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Amen, church. There's some of you that have sown in tears in the past. Though one goes along weeping, carrying a bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. God is still working. He's still working. I'm telling you there's value to looking toward better days. I'm preaching to somebody this morning. There's value to looking for. See, see, I believe there's nothing in the past that can stop the grace of God in the future. Just nothing. There's something powerful that happens when you expect God for tomorrow. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's doing that. He's looking back. Now he's looking around, but he's not allowing what he sees around him to stop him from looking forward. He's right there. It is okay to say, man, those were the days. They were. And those, those were the days. But that doesn't mean those days are gone forever. He's looking forward. In the last part of the psalm, the memory of those laughter-filled days of the past, they they weren't just nostalgic. They were grounds for hope, even for better days to come. It's It's not just some wishing in the wind kind of faith. It's the strong, realistic core of Christianity that says he has granted us wonderful joys in the past and he can be counted on to give us wonderful days again. It's been said a man can live a little while without water, a little less without food, a little less without air, but a man cannot live a moment without hope. You can hope for better days. The cross tells us that. We can hope for better days. That's what the psalmist is asking God for. He's like... Can you give us some better days? I know what you've done, but I believe you can do it again. Can you do it for us? Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes. Like the watercourses in the Negev, those who sow in tears will reap in shouts of joy. You know, if you're doing Bible study and you're reading and you see, a, you see a location like the Negev, dig it out. What is that? That's there for a reason. What's significant? Well, the Negev is a desert in southern Judah. It's, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was like that's where his life was. He was dry, and he was unproductive, and he was stuck. So he's looking around like, I know, God, what you've done. I know what the other nations have said that you can do. But right now, I need that again in my life because it's dry. And what would happen is the desert would have these gullies, and, and, they, and they, were, they were just remains of streams. They're parched. They're barren. They're hot. They're comfortless. And then, in those rare occasions, you would have this—you would have this storm that would roll in, and it would quickly just pour so much rain that those streams would fill up immediately. So he's bringing this comparison. He's bringing the comparison to the way that Cyrus wrote the decree, and they were instantly had joy again. He said, "Do that again, Lord. I know you can do it instantly." You can bring, you can bring hope again. See, in salvation, He'll do that instantly. You've experienced new life, but you know as well as I do, exiles don't happen every day. Exiles are, are rare. No nation carried in the exiles ever returned to reconstitute itself. But if God can do it once, He can do it again. He's saying it can happen immediately. But look at verse (coughs) 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying a bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. We we see a comparison right here. The question is, what if it doesn't happen overnight? What, What if it takes a while? He says weeping, it's possible that results come only after long periods of work and waiting. Don't give up. Better days are ahead. Amen? Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like water courses in the Negev. But it might not happen immediately. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. See it. As those times that God does work suddenly, it's possible that he will work without any labor on our part. But typically, that's not the way it works. In most situations, gladness comes after long, faithful labor in the things of God. That's where your gladness comes from. Write this down. In order for God to, to bring out the best of his children, scenarios may linger so strength and character grows. How long, Lord? He's working. He's shaping Going to happen overnight. We want it to. Question that I ask in marriage counseling a lot marriage counseling, I call it wife training. That was a joke. That was a joke. <clears throat> yeah, boo, boo. A question that I ask a lot is hey, if, if, you were, if you were to say how well you know your spouse, is it a GED, is it a bachelor's degree, high school diploma, is it a PhD, a master's degree? You know, if you want to get to a point that your relationship is growing and it's it, it's honoring the Lord, it's not going to happen just overnight. It's a long, continuous process of laboring and sowing, sometimes sowing in tears. What it's saying is, so remember the past and be encouraged for it. Keep praying, keep working, because the Lord who gives us work to do also sends the harvest. Restore our fortunes, Lord, right? water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping and carrying a bag of seed. You see that? Even though they're broken, they are still sowing the seeds. They're still living for the Lord, even though what they see around them breaks their heart, keeps them up at night, sowing in tears. Anything that you sow for in the gospel will return. Anything because it's eternal, it will resent. It will give a harvest. It was a little boy, little boy on a plane, and that plane was hitting some turbulence. I mean, that plane was all over the place. That little boy was bouncing. He was laughing. He was jumping. He was having the time of his life. The lady sitting next to him, who, who didn't know him, had had enough. She said, kid, Please. Please stop. I'm terrified. How can you be so happy when there's all this turbulence? And so he just went over, and he put his hand on her knee. He said, lady, it's okay. It's okay because my daddy's the pilot. (laughs) You need to calm down. See, the reason that we can laugh, the reason that we can have joy in the suffering, is because we know that our daddy's driving the plane. He's in full control. The tears are not in vain. When your daddy is the pilot, you can handle the turbulence. The tears are not in vain. They are seeds of refreshment. Keep sowing the seeds of the gospel. Some of you have experienced that. You've sown some seeds in tears. But just now you're beginning to see the the, the little baby sprouts. Your heart is glad. 1 Corinthians 3.6 tells us this. I planted Apollos water but God gave the growth. First Corinthians 15, 58, it's one of my life verses, therefore my dear brothers and sisters be steadfast immovable always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Ephesians three twenty. now to him who was able to do above and beyond all that we ask or Think according to the power that works in us. You see, that's the truth. No work is done in God will ever be fruitless. Did you get that? It it will never be fruitless. No work spoken on behalf of the gospel, no kindness practiced out of the love of Christ, no righteous stand taken will ever go unnoticed. So don't you give up. Don't become complacent in your expectations. Expect God to, to blow your mind and just give you that giggle. Like, God, I can't believe you did this. But God, you can turn, He can turn our sorrows into gladness. Like we've seen. If I'm not dead, He's not done. But if, yeah, of course, the labor is hard because this is a sinful world. But there's a promise. If God sees those tears. He sees those tears that you share for the cause and the concern of Christ. And the person that remains dependent on the Lord will enjoy God's blessing. So God knows what it is to weep. The shortest verse in the New Testament simply says, Jesus wept. As he stands at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's thinking about the consequence of sin in physical death, it breaks his heart. And he weeps over it. He knows you're suffering. But he also knows that one day those tears will be wiped away to God be the glory. And they will, be, they will be replaced by indescribable joy that will last forever. But until that day, what do we do church? Until that day, we remember God's past faithfulness. We notice others giving God the credit. And we look forward to better days. That's... Is how you get your hallelujah back. That's how you get your shout back, <clears throat> and that's how that you get going with the gladness.